Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. The, the the big show. We have Raina Grande, who is a woohoo, yeah, <laughs> who is an award winning novelist and memoirist, a 2003 Emerging Voice Fellow from Penn America. She has received an American Book Award, the El the El Primo Aslan Literary Award, and the International Latino Book Award. In 2012, she was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award, and in 2015, she was honored with a Luis Leal Award for Distinction in Chicano Latino Literature. Her works have been published internationally in Norway, South Korea, and Mexico. She has two novels, Across a Hundred Mountains and Dancing with Butterflies, and a best-selling memoir, The Distance Between Us. And tonight, we're here to discuss the sequel to The Distance Between Us, her new memoir, A Dream Called Home, which if you don't all have it in your hand, you should... And joining her is Kieran Kahn, a writer. Woohoo! Yes. Okay, keep it going. A writer living in Oakland who calls Albuquerque, New Mexico, her hometown, and Peshawar, Pakistan, her homeland. Kieran is an alum of Vona, Las, Las Dos Brujas, and the Tin House Writers Workshop, a 2017 Penn Emerging, also Penn Emerging Voice Fellow. Yes, I love all this. Enthusiasm and a 2018 Steinbeck Fellow. Her work has appeared or is forthcoming in The Margins, Your Impossible Voice, Impossible Voice. My ink has what is even in this? The Adroit Journal and Foglifter, among others. Others, you guys. Um, Karen is working on her first novel. And they're here to discuss A Dream Called Home, who um, Valeria Luiselli says, when the spark of a fierce intelligence touches the soul deep and true, an entire world is born. Writers like Rana Grande give us more than a story, more than a book, more than just a slice of their experience, of their imagination. They give us a world in which to dwell, a place we can always return to when we need to make sense of the chaos that surrounds us. A Dream Called Home is such a place. Here they are. Buenas noches. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for being here today. Karen, thank you for being here. <laughs> of course, thank you for having me, Skylight. Thank you. And of course, the Penn Emerging Voices. Fellowship and Penn America, thanks for having us. Um, that's actually how I first, so I was a Penn Fellow in 2017, and I heard about the program through Raina, who I met. She was my very first writing mentor, and I met her at a regional Vona Voices workshop. So Vona is a writer's workshop for people of color, and the regional one was like a very, you know, I think it's three days, it's mm -hmm. truncated, and um, in the course of that time, Raina was very open and just like, you know, you can ask me anything, like, tell, I'll tell you the truth about 
the writing world. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, we're all like, what, how, what, how much do you make? And like, you know, <laughs> but <laughs> she kept it real. Um, she told mm -hmm. us not to quit our day jobs. And um, yeah, and then one of the things she told us about was the Pen Emerging Voices Fellowship. And so from the moment I heard about it, I resolved to apply and uh, yeah, and the rest is history. So I'm so excited to be able to speak with you about your latest book. I read your first memoir, of course. Um, and I think, can you guys hear me okay? I think to get started, I'll ask, I mean, this becomes a bit more obvious when you're reading it, but to someone who hasn't read your memoir, what, would mo what made you decide to write a sequel to the first? Mostly my readers because everywhere I went to talk about the distance between us, everybody wanted to know what happened next. Mm -hmm. And I would find myself saying, um, talking a lot about you know, my experiences in, at the university, the challenges of trying to become a published author. I would talk a lot about what happened with my parents and with my siblings and where everybody ended up. So what I realized I was doing was I was actually writing the book orally. Mm -hmm. And a few years into it, I realized, you know what? I think I've talked so much about my, this world and, and these people, my family, that I'm going to, um, to write the book because I, I have it all in my head already. And it was the easiest book I've ever written. Really? It was. It, it, I wrote it in less than a year. Oh, wow. Whereas uh, my other books, I've taken like four years to write. Each book has taken me about four years on and off to write. And this book, because I had already um, learned um, how to put together a memoir, I was, in terms of craft, I was able to, to give a shape right, right off the bat. I knew mm -hmm. what I was doing. I had already talked so much about the experiences. And I had also, I had a very clear theme, which was home and the search for home. So everything that went into the book always tied back into that theme of, of home and belonging. It was a difficult book to write because um, it was my first book that I wrote under contract. And I, my editor gave me a contract and... Um, without reading anything. I hadn't written anything and I said, are you sure you don't want me to go write first and then I'll show you what I have and then you can decide if you wanna give me a contract? And she said, nope, at this point I know you know how to write a book. Nice, and it's writer's street cred. Yeah, so <laughs> she gives me this contract for it and then I went and I wrote it but the whole time I felt very pressured because I felt, what if I end up writing a book that's not what she thinks I'm writing? You know, because the thing is that you could, you might have an idea for a book, but once you start writing it, it might become something completely different. Right. And I didn't want to be beholden to what she thought I was gonna write. And I, I was scared that the writing might take me somewhere else and it might become something different and then, once I delivered the manuscript that she would say to me, this is not what I, you know, what I paid you for. Right. Go write the other book. When and she gave so you the contract, did you know that you wanted to write a continuation of your memoir? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you, you at least knew that. But uh, Yeah, but all I had was just a basic idea, you know, what it was going to be. And it wasn't until I started to write the book 
that, that I saw, the shape it was gonna take. So I felt a lot of pressure because I didn't want to disappoint. And I had to silence those voices, you know, in my head about like, what if this book sucks? And also people really liked the distance between us. So then I felt a lot of pressure, like mm. I'm gonna disappoint my readers. And I just, it, it, I had to work so hard to quiet those voices and just, just write without worrying about it. And so I'm so glad <laughs> <It's done. laughs> I, I turned off the, those sounds in my head and that, that negativity in my head. It's reassuring to yeah. hear that you still have those voices oh, yeah, because I yeah. think a lot of emerging writers and beginning writers, you know, those voices get really loud. And also because reading A Dream Called Home, what's so striking to me is that you are incredibly persistent. Like your whole life, even... Um, from when you're a child is like, well, someone said I couldn't do that thing. So then I went to do the thing. And <laughs> it doesn't, so I don't always hear that, that hesitance, you know, in the action. You wouldn't, like if someone was to look at your life as the timeline played out, mm -hmm. they would think you were just like completely mm -hmm. all in mm -hmm. going for it. So it's interesting to hear that you still have, have doubts and worry about mm -hmm. kind of those writer anxieties. Well, I, th I think what's important is that we push through, you know, those, all of those things and that we learn how to rise above those things too. Right. Because, I mean, the fact is that as human beings, we are constantly um, being challenged in terms of um, questioning who we are and what we have to offer to the world and we're constantly wondering if we're good enough, you know, if we're good enough. And, and um, I think for me, I suffer from those, that insecurity, I suffer from those fears, um, but I manage to always say, forget it, I'm right. gonna do it anyway. Right. And what I've come to understand is that failure is not trying. Mm -hmm. And I always tell myself, as long as I keep trying, I'm not failing. Right. And it's so remarkable because you, you start to see that emerge in the story of your life as it's written is, is that there's so many points where you could have gone this way. You know, I mean, when you were expecting your first kid, like your life could have gone this way. Or maybe, you know, you decide to stay with a partner who isn't right for you. It could have gone this way. And then there's this sense of, of staying true to yourself that, you know, may, might sound cliche, but it's really it's really true that you just really held on to that fundamental belief in your need to write and in, in that dream as well. I, um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about writing a memoir, particularly earlier in, in A Dream Called Home, you say something about how fiction had been your space where you could kind of talk about life and have it feel safer. Mm -hmm. um, so what changed that made you able to write about your real life? so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, I became more confident in my writing mm -hmm. because when I first was learning the craft of writing, I was struggling, you know, how to, how to learn how to be a storyteller. And when I tried to write about myself, I, it was a double struggle because not only was I, was I learning how to write, but then I was also learning how to make sense of my 
trauma, you know, right. and, and my, my very difficult experiences and my emotions. And I felt I, I, I cannot do both. I cannot figure out both. I want to just learn how to do one thing first before I can tackle the other. And fiction became my way of me learning how to be a writer and how to strengthen uh, my skills as a writer. But still being able to explore my own experiences by, but through fiction. And it allowed me to create characters that would stand in for me. So whenever the writing was very difficult emotionally, I would say, well, that's happening to her, not mm. to you. You know, keep going. Mm. And that's how I managed to write. And I, I wrote uh, my first novel, Across 100 Mountains. I, I finished the novel as an Emerging Voices Fellow. You know, that was my project when I got accepted into EV. Um, my goal was that by the end of the program, I was going to have a finished novel. Like, that was the goal when I started. And I was very fortunate that I had a mentor who was willing to read as much as I would give her. So I was giving her 100 pages every month <laughs> to read, and she would read them all. And that was my goal. Like, every month I'm going to give her, you know, more pages, more pages, and I would revise. And, and I, that's how I learned how to um, how to be a stronger writer, but I still managed to write a story about immigration and family separation that explored you know my experiences, but through fiction. And after I finished my second novel, that was when I felt strong enough as a writer to finally say I'm ready to be the protagonist of my own story. Mm. And that's when I started writing the memoir. And it really, really helped me to be a novelist before I was a memoirist because I knew about um, story structure, plot points, all of those things. Because as I, when, I started, when I started to write a memoir, I, I realized, you know, we don't, we don't go around our, you know, through our lives saying, oh, that was my inciting incident. Oh, mm -hmm. that, that, what happened right there, that was my... My first These plot are my point. foils. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and no, you know, that was my second plot point right there. But when I was writing The Distance Between Us, I suddenly realized I had to look at my experiences in terms of plot points mm -hmm. so that I could craft a story that had a narrative arc and that had a very solid, you know, structure. And, and that's when I took out all of, all, everything I had learned by writing novels, I took, I took all of that out and I applied it to writing memoir. So, so. how did you choose that? Because I mean, obviously life has so much more than what can fit into any story, but especially with memoir, when you're looking at your own life, mm -hmm. how do you choose what goes in and what scenes get cut out? It all has to do with theme. And I use a, a very clear example when I teach memoir. I always tell my students that when you set out to write a memoir, you need to know um, what the theme is. It's almost like when you're going on a trip, you have to know where you're going, right? So if you're going to Miami, you look at your closet and you have a ton of clothes, but you select what you're gonna take to your trip to Miami, right? And that's what you put in your suitcase. If you're going to go to Alaska, you look at your closet full of clothes, and you select what clothes fit the trip that you're taking. And if you don't know the theme, you're going to put everything in your closet, 
And what some people do is, uh, because they don't want to work on, on finding a theme, is uh, they pack everything in there, and it becomes this big mess, you know? And um, it just gets bigger and bigger, and then it doesn't fit in the suitcase, and they go and get a bigger suitcase. <laughs> so, so that's how I kept it very clear in terms of what uh, memories I was going to put in the book, what I was going to put in my suitcase, and which memories I wasn't going to put in. And in the distance between us, uh, I realized as I was writing the book that I was writing about the many kinds of distance in my family. You know, mm -hmm. there was a physical distance, the emotional distance, that distance created by my assimilation and my parents didn't assimilate. Language became a distance when I learned English and they didn't. Education became a distance when I went to college and my parents only went to elementary school. So I realized like I'm, I'm dealing with distance and that's, mm -hmm. what, that's what went in the book. Every scene had to do with us um, getting farther and farther apart or trying to fight to, to come back together. So with this book, I realized as I began to write the book that I was writing about home and it was my search for a home, my longing for a home, um, my, um, me struggling to find a place where to belong and to be accepted. Mm -hmm. So every scene in the, in the book had to tie back to, to home. Even the relationships, you know, with, I write a lot about the men in my life and I didn't write about all of them because <laughs> in, the book would have been like, like this. Some of that stuff's just So boring. then when it was time to select the men that I wrote about, I had to tie them back to home. And if they tied back to home, then, then they made the cut. Was there, <laughs> fair enough. Was there anyone or any moments that you cut that maybe did fit, but that you didn't feel comfortable you know, whether you felt you had to protect yourself or protect other people in them, where you chose to cut them out? There were a few. There were a few things that I felt I couldn't include. And some of them, you know, it was um, mostly I was, I was trying not to write too much about my siblings. Mm -hmm. Because when in the distance between us, the whole book is about me and my siblings, and they play such a huge part in the story. And I felt that it was okay and with them also that I write about our childhood because, you know, we were children and, and whatever we did wrong, it was through that, that lens, right, of, of children. But as an adult, like I was writing about, you know, our adulthood, I felt uncomfortable writing things about their own personal lives. Mm -hmm. and, and I didn't want to write more than I had to. So um, that's, that's what I, I had to leave out, a lot of things that, even though they impacted my life in some ways, I, I didn't write about them. Right. Yeah. Did, you get, did you run the book by them, or were you just like, I have final say? I, you, I showed it to my sisters. Okay. Yeah, mm -hmm. my sisters read the, the manuscript, uh, especially my older sister. There was one chapter in there that's about her marriage and her leaving her husband. Right. And I showed it to her and I said, are you okay with me writing about your marriage? And um, she approved it. She also changed some of the dialogue and she was like, I didn't say that, you know, <laughs> this is what I said. So then she sent me a revised draft. That's the uh, danger with, of asking. With, yeah, yeah, with new dialogue. <laughs> and, and that was okay, you know, like I kind of, 
like compared it to my own memories and 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 I was like okay you know that's the way she remembers things and so I was I was I try to be very respectful um I a lot of people that I write about read the manuscripts oh. I I, sh I send them the the manuscripts I said this is what I wrote about you tell me how you feel and then the ones that I didn't want I didn't really care how they felt I didn't show them the manuscript, but I did change their names. Mm. Yeah, I changed their names just to That's strategic. Kind of, yeah, because yeah. I know people who are writing memoir, even just like short pieces, even uh, essays about themselves and their lives. This is something that becomes a big deal to them. It's yeah. Like, oh mm -hmm. well, my family doesn't want us sharing their our secrets, or right, right. doesn't want us to look bad. Mm -hmm. There's a scene um, where you're graduating and you give a speech about your mentor, mm -hmm. I think it's Diane. Mm -hmm. Diana. Diana. Mm -hmm. Diana, and in the process of telling the story of your, how she took you in and helped you so much, you, and I was like physically cringing and going, Raina, no, <laughs> I was reading this. But you, t you speak in front of the whole crowd about the fact that your father was an alcoholic and was physically abusive, mm -hmm. and he was in the audience right there. Yeah. And... Like, that's like, oh, it's so hard because, and I think that's really a microcosm of what the memoirist is doing mm -hmm. in some ways. Is like, how do you tell the truth about the people you love who can still hurt you and who you may still like right, love? Right, right. And, yeah. and stay true to what happened. And that was a big worry for me because when I gave that speech at my graduation and my dad is sitting there and I'm telling everybody at the graduation that he was an alcoholic and physically abusive. Afterwards, he he was very unhappy, and we did not talk for a while, you know, because he was upset and hurt that I had said that. So when I was writing that distance between us, I hear, I'm, uh, like, that was a five-minute speech. Now I'm writing a 350-page <laughs> book about, <laughs> about this, and I, I was worried wh about what my dad was going to say and how he was going to feel. And... Um, my father passed away while I was writing the book. Mm. And in a way, it, it, uh, I felt relieved that he wasn't going to be around to read it and mm -hmm. to, you know, to see it come out in the world. But at the same time, because he passed away while I was writing the book, it forced me to work really, really hard on uh, giving him his humanity. Mm -hmm. Because it was not a memoir about, look how awful my father was to me. Right. You know, it was a memoir about trying to understand who he was and why he behaved that way. And writing about him really helped me to understand my father and to forgive my father for, for the way he, he was. So, so that's something that I feel that his death forced me to, to work even harder to make sure that as a writer, I treated him with compassion, you know, and that I did everything I could to to make him into this three-dimensional character that the reader would not judge, that right. the reader would understand. Because like, the, like the optics of it are so tense, right? Like, oh, the alcoholic, Mexican, yeah. abusive father, mm -hmm. no, no, no. And it's like, well, okay, these things happened, but that's not, that's not who this person is. And, that, yeah. you know, like... I'm Muslim, my family's Muslim, and then like the, oh, you're abusive towards women, and it's like, well, I've, I've experienced that, but I also don't want mm -hmm. you to feel like, you don't want to be confirming some 
inhumanity or inhuman perceptions. Yeah, yeah. And I think part of the importance of your book, of course, you know, discussing immigration and immigrant lives, but also like just humanizing people who don't get humanized very often. Right. Um, yeah, and I actually somebody asked me a question one time at a panel about they said, were you worried about writing uh, a stereotypical um, Mexican father? Yeah. Right? Was that a worry for you? And I said, you know, when my father was drinking and he was beating me up, he was not worried about being a stereotype. <laughs> so why should I? Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And at the same time, you don't write a stereotypical Mexican father. Like, those are you know, their conditions or that's, you, you managed to capture his humanity still, very much so. Yeah. Um, I was hoping you would read a bit from your work, specifically yeah, as it pertains to your father, because I think yeah, this is a and really I think, important um, moment. Yeah, with, with this book, it gave me a chance to further explore my relationship with my dad even more. And one of the things that happened during this time period that I'm writing about in my 20s is that I became a mother. And when that happened, uh, my perspective began to shift in terms of how I saw my father and, and how I saw um, our immigrant experience also began to shift because of, of me becoming a mother myself. So I'm gonna read an excerpt of, um, when, when I'm a new mom, my baby's three months old, and my father comes to build me a fence because I have bought a house in a, in a very, um, very dangerous neighborhood, and I was a single mother, and my father was worried about me, so he came to build me a, a fence. Okay. True to his word, he showed up the next two Sundays and spent the whole day putting up a wooden fence that encircled the property. For the first time, I found myself reconnecting with my father in a way I hadn't done in a long time. I came out with a glass of water for him and sat a few feet away as I watched him work. At first, neither of us talked. I held my baby in my arms and the little bundle against my chest helped me be brave in my father's presence. Every time I saw him, I reverted to my old self. I was tongue-tied and nervous around him. I didn't know what to talk to him about or how to engage him and get him to talk to me. He was a private man and didn't like to share anything about himself, especially with his children. My father was a mystery to me, a puzzle with too many missing pieces that I wish I could find and put together so I could finally fully understand the man whose blood flowed through my veins. As my father worked, I watched him do what he did best. He was just as good at building things as he was at destroying them. I watched his hands, so brown and strong, shaped just like my own. I admired his skills as he measured and cut, hammered and drilled. One by one, the wooden slats went up as he drilled them in place. A helicopter flew by and the sound took me into the borderlands 
reminding me of the crossing that divided my life into a before and an after. I remember so vividly that moment when we were trying to cross, the fear of being caught by border patrol, of being sent back to Mexico, and losing my chance at having my father back in my life. I remember how my father had been right. At nine years old, I was too little to make the crossing, and I had put everyone at risk of being caught. Sure enough, Border Patrol caught us and sent us back to Tijuana twice. It was a miracle that we made it the third time, although my father had to carry me on his back most of the way. It was there at the U.S. border that I got my first piggyback ride from my father. Do you remember our crossing? I asked him. No, he said. I've tried to forget. Then he lowered his drill and looked at me. You shouldn't think about it, chata. What happened is already in the past. Leave it at that. Olvídalo. Move on with your life. He turned back to the fence and resumed his work. I didn't tell him that I couldn't forget. The only way I could move on was by remembering my past and trying to make sense of it. Only by understanding and accepting the life I had lived could I free myself from the trauma that still haunted me and kept me prisoner. This is why I needed to write. It was the only way I would ever be free. My father, on the other hand, drowned his immigrant trauma in a can of Budweiser. Even though his newfound religion had helped him quit drinking, he eventually started up again. And nine years later, he would die of liver cancer, still a prisoner of his trauma. Do you regret immigrating? I asked him as he turned off the drill. He looked at me for a long time as he weighed his words very carefully. Too many people in this world are living lives full of regrets, chata. At church, I've learned there's a better way to live in Jesus. Do you think he regrets dying for our sins? I looked down at the ground. How would I know if Jesus regretted anything? <laughs> My father continued, Jesus died to save you, Chata, and he would die again for you if he had to, just like I would immigrate again for you if I had to. He looked at my baby and said, you're a mother, maybe now you'll understand. He turned back to his drilling and didn't look at me again. Nathan woke up from his nap and I took him in to change his diaper, pondering my father's words. I buried my nose in my baby's little neck, inhaling the sweet scent of baby powder. Chiquito mio, I promise I'll never leave you. As I held my son in my arms, I began to understand the paradox of our immigrant experience. Despite the trauma I had suffered from my father's decision to immigrate, that same decision would allow me to be the parent he could never be. I would get to watch my son grow up. I would get to celebrate birthdays and holidays with him. I would never have to walk away from my son and go to another country to seek a better life for him. I would get to spare my child the misery of being a border crosser. 
When my father was finished with the fence and left, I went up back to run my hands along its surface, admiring his work, the wooden slats as hard and rough as his hands. My father believed in the gift Jesus had given us. I believed in the gift my father had given me, this fence, and the time I got to spend with him while he built it. But as I stood there with my baby in my arms, I realized there was another thing he had given me. My father's greatest gift to me was that I would get to be the parent who stays. Thank you. I think that um, that scene, of course, is very moving, even if you haven't read her books. And I th that, that question that you ask of, you know, did you regret immigrating? And I'm, I'm not an immigrant, but I'm a child of immigrants. And I think every child of immigrants wonders if their parents regret you know, because we, you grow up hearing the sacrifice, or mm -hmm. a lot of times you see it very directly, what your parents are giving up for you and how much it hurts them. And so, in asking if if they regret it, you're also asking if if you were worth it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that his way of showing you your worth is really incredible for someone who couldn't speak so eloquently. Yeah, and I think for me, you know. When I became a parent, it, it really s helped me to understand so much more about my dad and my mom too, but, but mostly my, my father. And um, in August, you know, when this summer, th the family separations that were going on at the, at the border, um, I had never written in defense of parents, immigrant parents because everything I ever write about immigration is from a child's perspective, you know, because that's how ex I experience immigration. And this summer, um, I kept hearing things like, well, it's the parents' fault. They're mm -hmm. the ones who are bringing their children. And Jeff Sessions said, uh, well, if parents don't want their children taken from them, they shouldn't bring them in the first place. And that, that, that made me so angry, like, I feel so, so much rage at, at that because I was thinking about my father and all the parents who are put in that situation, you know, where they have to choose between leaving their children behind or bringing them along and risking their lives to cross the border. And my father had made both choices, right. you know. At first he left us behind for many years and then the second time, he made the choice to bring us across the border. So I, I wrote a, 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 an op-ed that was published in the New York Times in defense of the parents. And it was such a, um, for me, it was such a cathartic moment mm -hmm. like to actually write from, from that point of view. And in a way, it was a love letter to my father, you know, mm -hmm. saying, I understand now and I forgive you because it is not fair for a parent, any parent, to be forced into that kind of situation. Right. And, and it was, yeah, it, for me, it's just like, this is why I can forgive my father. Like everything, all the, the 
the bad things that he did, I forgive him. Right, right. And it really comes through. I think when I said that it becomes obvious when you read your sequel to your first memoir why you wrote it, to me, as I was reading it, it was like, oh, there's closure here. Mm -hmm. And it's not like a perfect tied bow, but because the first memoir deals so much with childhood and becoming an adult and... uh, you know, I think it ends with you going to college. And um, so there's you have the adults and then the children, right? Mm. So the adults make the decisions. They have the control. And then there's the children. And, they, and you don't have as many choices. Right. Um, and uh, coming back and revisiting as an adult where suddenly you're interacting with your parents as another adult, where you're trying to, you know, interact with your siblings, um, it really changes everything. And you, you look at your parents in a different way. And it it gives them small ways or moments of grace, mm-hmm. right, where they get to show you some measure of what you mean to them. Yeah, and yeah. I think, you know, that scene is very compelling. Um, the scene that, lo- like, made me cry was um, you're in the car with your mom mm-hmm. after a big reading, and, um, she, you know, they, they sa- she says... They all read your book, Reina? And you say, yes, it was required, required reading. And she keeps, she keeps talking about all the books that you had just signed. And, um, and then you say this, I wish she would tell me she was proud of me. But neither she nor my father had ever said that to me, just as no one had said it to them. Which, I mean, is so universal, I think, of something mm-hmm. we want from our parents. But then... She starts asking you as you're driving, she starts asking you questions just like the students did in the car. So you had, you say you had a Q&A session in Spanish just for her. Mm-hmm. You know, Reina, when did you start writing? Why did you want to be a writer? And to have that, um, you say here, you know, finally, for the first time in my life, my mother sat next to me and, with undivided attention, listened to my story. And... Um, even for me, <laughs> that's so, I think, in part because writing a memoir, you're asking people to bear witness right, to right. a lot of pain and also to these relationships. And it's, and it's hard to ask someone to do that. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And it's so rare that you get any kind of uh, closure on it as, right. a, as a person. And then as a reader, it's, you know, we're the side benefit. Um, and so this is... A woman who has, you know, chosen men over you, over the kids in multiple occasions and Mm -hmm. has really built this sense of abandonment. And so it really does seem like, you know, in the culmination of the two books, this really is the first time, like, you're the only one in the car and you're the only person that she wants to talk to. And it just felt like this huge moment in the book. Yeah, and, and, and for life. me, like, it was it was such a special moment with my mother because um, my mother only went to the sixth grade. And here I am with my MFA, right? Uh, and my so my college experience was something I could never share with my mother. And also because she only went to the sixth grade and she's had to work most of her life, books were not part of who she was. So even though I was a writer, she never read my work. And, and so I couldn't find a connection with my mother. And this moment, you know, it was uh, the first time that my book, uh, Across the Hundred Mountains, was picked for the freshman read at UC Santa Cruz. 
I brought her with me so that she could help me with my baby while I gave my talk. And the whole talk was in English because it was at the college and my mother doesn't speak English, so she didn't understand a word I said. And I felt that disconnect again, you know, that even though I had brought her into my world, she felt that she didn't belong there, right? She couldn't speak the language. She didn't know what was going on. She was, she looked just as scared as me when I went up on stage, oh, you God. know? <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and so after, and I felt the whole time I was speaking on stage, it, I was excited to be there with the students and at the same time, I knew that every word I said, my mother was not understanding a single thing. So, so I was like torn, you know, torn in, in wanting to connect with the students and in connecting with the students, I was disconnecting from my mother. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was a very complicated moment for me, but yeah, once we were in the car, my mother started asking me all these questions in Spanish. And it was her first time when she actually was interested in my writing and she wanted to know more about it. So that was a, a moment, you know, talking about the theme of home, like that was mm -hmm. a moment when I felt I'm home right here with her. We're together in the same space and I can finally share my writing with her in a way that I wanna share. So, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's that connection. Mm -hmm. um, you're speaking about the the language aspect, and there's a section in the book where you are taking Spanish classes, I want to say, mm -hmm. to learn to speak more formally. Yeah. And, um, and then at the same time, <laughs> I think you're reading um, like Gloria Ansatua and, yeah. and kind of discussing the idea that, like, is your Spanish poor people's Spanish, or is it good, is it bad, mm -hmm. um, or is it its own third? identity um and yeah I was wondering if you had like comments on that or you know this sense yeah um I have a very complicated relationship with Spanish because I feel like you know I'm married to Mr. English but Spanish <laughs> was my first love right and and uh <laughs> And then, and I, I have guilt, I have a lot of guilt that I feel like I've been conquered because I have been colonized because English is my dominant language now. It's my dominant language. It's the language I write in, I think in, I dream in, everything. It, it has become my dominant language. And, you know, Spanish was my first, was my, my first tongue, my native tongue, but when I, arrived in the U.S. and I was um, made to feel ashamed for being a Spanish speaker, I, I had to learn English in order to survive in, in this world that did not allow me to, to be a Spanish speaker. So when I was at UCSC, I discovered that they, they had a class called Spanish for Spanish Speakers. And I signed up as a way to try to reclaim some of that forgotten language and I feel very torn because, you know, I, I realized when I took that class that my Spanish was poor people's Spanish. You know, I mean, my family was poor. So we said words that were wrong, that were conjugated wrong, that had the stress on the wrong syllable, like that kind of stuff. And my, but my teacher was very, very kind. And she would always say, there's no right or wrong way, you know, to speak it and don't be ashamed of how you speak Spanish. But I always felt the shame. 
So I've had, um, yeah, this, this, this such a complicated relationship with it. And I still do, like I still struggle with it because um, one thing that I feel bad about is that I don't write in Spanish. You know, people always ask me, um, what language do you write in? And I say, well, I always write in English. But what I try to do to compromise was to write in English and then do my own translation. And I translated my first novel, I translated The Distance Between Us into Spanish. And then, you know, once in a while, somebody emails me and tells me that I made a mistake. <laughs> and they even gave me the page number because they're so kind <laughs> that, you know, they want to make sure I know exactly <laughs> what page number and what paragraph it, it was where my, where my mistake is. And so I, I feel insecure, you know, because I know that my Spanish is, is imperfect. So this time around, um, my, ed my, pub my editor wanted to hire a professional translator to do a dream called home. And because I was feeling insecure, I said, okay, hire someone who's going to do it perfectly. <laughs> and he did it too freaking perfectly. <laughs> Because when the translator sent me my book back, I didn't recognize it. <laughs> I had to look up the words in the dictionary <laughs> because I didn't know what freaking beneplacito is <laughs> and, and, and all these crazy words, rutilante. Anybody here know what rutilante is? I had no idea what the hell rutilante is, okay? Anyway, so, so, I, um, so I had shock, like there was this humongous shock where I'm looking at my book and it's not mine, you know, <laughs> like it just sounds nothing like me, these fancy words, like I feel like I needed to go get a PhD in Spanish so I could read my work and I begged my editor to let me redo it. I said, this, ha this does not have my voice, right. it doesn't have my soul. Um, I think the translator was trying to show off his Spanish and how good it is. And it's like, okay, I admire you. Good job, you know, but I'm going to go in and I'm going to make it mine. And that's why the Spanish actually is four weeks late um, because I had to take uh, four weeks to redo it. And I, I made it my own. And I said, I don't care if tomorrow someone's emailing me and telling me that in, on page 200 there's a freaking mistake. I'm going to say, oh, well, deal with it. <laughs> but I think right there you see exactly the tenacity that I, when I think of Reina, it's like, oh, well, she gets what she wants, whatever it is. She, and it's not out of entitlement. It's out of, like, sheer determination and knowing what's right and... You know, the translation was wrong, so you made it right. And it's, it's better for it. I work with translators in my day job, and they are not supposed to take your voice and do all of that. Um, I, I think one of the interesting things, well, among many interesting things, is that when you talk about being kind of in the borderlands as home and, you know, making a home that you carry on your back. Um, and so... There's this idea, the, the first time I actually had this thrown at me as someone who's been called, you know, Asian American or Pakistani American, hyphenated Muslim American, um, was at another Vona <laughs> workshop with Evelina Galang where she, we were talking about writing in our 
broken versions of our language, right? Like, mm-hmm. my family speaks Pashto. I'm not fluent in it, and I feel ashamed of that. And uh, and so we were, you know, multiple people in the cohort were talking about that shame of not speaking the language the way we felt we should in order to be authentic um, to our heritage. And she was the one who said, who told me that what I'm speaking isn't broken Pashto, and it's not English either. It's its own thing hmm. that we have um, these people who have these who've moved spaces mm-hmm. become something different and yeah. so whether you know the immigrant and mm-hmm. or you know the people who are in these in-between spaces create their own culture yeah. and language for their experiences mm-hmm. yeah and I actually like that in-between space and like I, I learned to live in the hyphen between Mexican and American you know and I kind of like it in that I feel it gives us a different perspective on both cultures. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes when you're immersed in a, in a culture, you idolize it, you romanticize it, you are unable to completely see its flaws, you know? Right. And I feel that because I live in that middle place, I can completely observe the Mexican culture and, and be able to really like critique it, you know, from a different perspective. And I get to see the shortcomings of my culture. But then I also look at the American culture and I'm able to see it from the outside and to also know like, you know, its shortcomings. And at the same time, I'm able to see what works in, e- in either culture and, and what's working and what's not working. and. I get to um, rotate in and out of both of these cultures. And it's, it's a really wonderful um, experience to be on the outside and on the inside at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, my immigrant experience is something that allows me to be able to connect with all immigrants, regardless of where they come from. You know, not yeah. just Latino immigrants, but any immigrant, any displaced people um, I'm able to like look at them, look at their stories, and, and recognize so much of, right. of myself in, in their experiences, and it makes me feel connected to, to, to the world um, because this is you know global migration. Absolutely. It's, it's what, what's, what's been happening. So there are some, some things, positive things that have come out of these experiences that I've had. I think touching on that, specifically connecting to other immigrants, I have this bookmarked too, but um, you had um, Jean Wakatsuki Houston was Mm -hmm. your first, was the first professional writer you ever met. Mm -hmm. And um, she wrote, she's five feet tall like me. (laughs) So that that was really inspiring. Instant connection. (laughs) Instant connection. She wrote Farewell to Manzanar. And, um, you know, so... Reina had read this book the, about the effects of the bombing of Pearl Harbor on Japanese Americans and um, related to the story. And then in, in her, in, the, in, Rain, blah, 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 in Reina's book, she talks about that connection. So as a woman of color, as an immigrant, knowing what it's like to be marginalized. And so these things that you experienced reading her book mm-hmm. are also what other people experience reading your work where th- we don't have to be from the exact same mm-hmm. background right, to right. connect to the humanity mm-hmm. within it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on that same page, I think another thing that comes through really clearly in your work is the need for representation and how important it was for you to read 
um, Latina writers yeah. for the first time. Mm -hmm. And you ask the question, if I'm, if I am not in literature, does that mean I don't exist? Yeah, and as a writer, I feel that um, when I first started writing, it was because I felt that I was going to have to write my way into existence. Right. And that's what like kept me, you know, writing, wanting to write books where I could, I could see myself and say, yeah, I'm, I, I do exist. I'm, I'm here. Uh, one thing that, that I really like about being a, an Emerging Voices Fellow is... Um, that it, al it allowed me to continue to fight for this belief that I had that immigrants deserve a place in American literature because our experiences are the American experience. Mm -hmm. So I am so grateful yeah. for Evie, for Ken, and what they do. Thank you. Thank you. We have time for questions if people have questions. Yeah, um, it, the first the first draft that I ever do is is me. I'm the audience. <laughs> I write it for myself, and I do that because I don't want to censor myself. Like I don't want to think about well, who's gonna read this, you know. So I I write it for me, and in doing that, I allow like the good, the bad, and the ugly to come out. Especially the ugly, it all comes out. Once I start revising, once I start like shaping the story, I, I do start thinking about, you know, who, who, will, who do I want to reach out to with this story and what's the message that I want them to get from it. And of course, my, my, uh, the first reader I think about are readers like me, right? Readers of color who need these kinds of stories and who need to see themselves on the page. But then I also think about the non, quote unquote, you know, the non-immigrant uh, reader whom I gain some understanding of, of um, from from what I write about this experience. Um, one one surprise that I had because I, I I always thought like I'm writing for 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 immigrants and also non-immigrants to get a, an understanding. But then there was a surprise after the book came out that children of immigrants mm -hmm. would come and talk to me and say, now I understand my father more. Now I understand my mother more and, and what they went through. And, and that, was, that was a surprise. I wasn't expecting that. And, and it made me really happy to, to help children have a better understanding of their parents and to have a stronger connection to, to their roots, their, their immigrant roots. Go ahead, Beth. Um, so the first piece that you had, um, was your abuela Evila was actually Evila, or is she just called by the text name? Oh, <laughs> my grandma Evila. That was really her name. Evila, which is the word evil with a nay. <laughs> and when I was writing The Distance Between Us, one of my writing teachers said, 
maybe you should change her name because it's really like, you know, hitting the reader over the top about how, uh, how evil she was. And I said, but that's her name. <laughs> like, I could, I could change it, you know. Um, that was really her name. So, and I remember when I was in fifth grade and I was learning English. I remember looking at a fairy tale and the word evil was in there. Maybe it was Snow White. And I saw the word evil and I said, that looks like my grandma's name. And I was learning English, so I didn't know what the word meant. So then I went and I looked it up in the dictionary, and I was like, that is my grandmother's name. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, I would say my children are pochos. I'm not a pocha. Yeah, I'm not a pocha. My little sister's a pocha, you know. She was born here. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's like the word Chicano. You know, the word Chicano back in the day was a bad thing, right? It was like beaner, you know, it was an insult. And then the Chicanos claimed it, and they turned it into something positive, something to be proud of. And I kind of feel like that, that word pocha and pocho, it's kind of in that, in that going into that same direction where, you know, it was created as an insult and then the pochos kind of claimed it and said, well, I'm a pocho, ¿y qué? you know? And so now it, it's become like, like something that, that, that they're proud of. This is who they are. It's their identity and they're going to own it. So I think it's, 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 it's nice, and I, I, it has such a nice, strong sound, too. And there's a book called Pocho that I love. I recommend it, Pocho, by Jose Antonio Villarreal, I think it's the author. It's really good. Excellent. Other questions? Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think a lot of writers would say yes, you know, that w wouldn't it be wonderful <laughs> if our books got made into um, movies or TV shows, right? And it happens a lot. Actually, a large portion of films are based on, on books, just not Latino books, mm -hmm. which is really unfortunate, you know? And I think that's something when it comes to invisibility, Latino writers are still fighting against that invisibility in Hollywood and how they don't consider our stories universal enough to be made into films. Like they feel like people outside of our culture are not gonna relate to it, you know, where we're just writing about the human experience. Right. So I, I've seen a little progress, not much, but for example, um, one of my favorite writers, Rudolfo Anaya, uh, his uh, book, Bless Me Ultima, which is a Chicano classic, uh, was finally made into a movie a few years ago. He had to wait 40 freaking years for that to happen, but hey, it happened, you know, and he got to see it on screen. And then one of my favorite books that, that the bookstore has here uh, for sale 
uh, We the Animals by Justin Torres was just made into a movie, just released this summer. And so that gives me hope, you know, when I see like, like Latino books on screen, it gives me hope that we're, we're finally starting to break through that, that barrier. But it also depends on you guys. You know, if you want to see more books um, of uh, writers of color, you know, be made into films, you have to go see those films. You have to support and you have to show up for them. So it, it, it t it's going to take all of us to send a message to Hollywood that we want more of these stories made. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Speaking of, we have time for more questions or how are we doing? Okay, we have one or two more. Uh, let's get the person in front of you. Yeah, um, well, yeah, when we came to live with my father, we were hardcore Catholics because in Mexico we had been taught to, to be Catholic. We were raised Catholic. And when we got here and we wanted to go to church, my father would raise his Budweiser and say, this is my God and he wouldn't take us to church. So then we weren't Catholic anymore after that, you know. Uh, so we lost our religion. It was really interesting that years later, my father gave up drinking because he became very religious. But it happens a lot, I've heard, that you replace one addiction with another. And my father gave up the drinking, and then he became addicted to religion, like his religion. He was so addicted to it that he was always at church. He never came to our like kids' birthday parties or any get-togethers because he had to be at church. And there was actually a scene that I deleted from, from the book um, when I got married. Because when I got married, um, my father kept pacing up and down and saying, when is this wedding going to start? Because I have to go to church. <laughs> I told the pastor I was going to cut the grass. And he kept demanding that the ceremony start because he had to go cut the grass. So then, you know, it really, like, impacted my enjoyment of my own wedding because I felt like even on this day, my father cannot, like, like just put, his addiction aside and enjoy this day. And, and he stuck around through the ceremony and then um, he left, you know, during the, the party. He took off and he didn't even say bye or anything. And, I'm all, and I could picture my father freaking mowing the lawn at his church and I'm all like, I hope he gets into heaven, you know? I hope they got him in. Yeah. One more question? Or I think you had your hand up earlier. Go ahead.
Yeah. Yeah, right. No, when I lived in, in Iguala, what we were mostly dealing with was the poverty. You know, my, my home state of Guerrero is the second poorest state in Mexico. And it has a large indigenous population and, and our indigenous communities are the poorest communities in Mexico. So, you know, you have Guerrero, Oaxaca, Michoacán, those are the three poorest states, you know, and then there's the others. Um, so we were dealing with a lot of poverty, but not the, the violence that, that my family deals with now. And the, the 43 students disappeared 10 minutes from my house, you know, where my family lives. So they, they're dealing with, with so much more now than what I dealt with, which is what really, I find it to be so tragic, you know, in that things, instead of getting better, things are getting worse in, in Mexico. So yeah, in regards to being an author, um, I made my career here in the US. You know, I was published here. I've had five books published in the US and, and I, nobody was interested in Mexico to publish my, my work. And it's because they don't consider me Mexican enough anymore. Um, and, and they kind of look down on, on Chicano and Chicana writers. So it, it took a while, but I finally found a publisher that was interested and they published The Distance Between Us in Mexico last year. So that was my first time I got to go back to my country as a published writer. Yeah. But it was very bittersweet in that even though I felt such a, just, just, um, it was such an honor for me to be able to revisit my country and, and as an author. And you know, people came to the, the reading that I did. There were a lot of people there. The thing that made it very, very sad is that almost no one in the audience could afford the book. Because in, in, in Mexico, people are making the minimum wage, the minimum daily wage that the government set is 80 pesos a day. My book costs 220 pesos, okay? So that is more than two days of wages that people would spend on buying my book. So, if, so even though I was there to share the book with them, I really couldn't share the book with them, you know, in that way. And even the, the, the employees of the, the, um, the book vendors, even they couldn't afford to buy the book because it was their daily wage that they were making. And they gave me a napkin to sign for them. Mm. Like that. Like, so, so it was like this moment, you know, where I felt like I'm so happy to be able to share my writing. And they, I really can't share my writing because they're living under this very oppressive, corrupt government that keeps them living hand to mouth with underpaid jobs and, and, and they can even afford the luxury of buying a book because it means not feeding their families if they do that, yeah. So these are some things that we really need to think about and talk about and especially when we talk about immigration, you know, like Trump is so focused on like deterring immigration by building these border walls and whatever. Instead, we should be asking ourselves like, why are these people coming? You know, what's driving them? to leave their homes, break up their families, put their lives at risk to come here. 
And if we start thinking about the fact that they're making, you know, $3 a day and they can't even survive um, even though they're working six, six days a week, 10 hours, 12 hours a day, they can't even buy the basic necessities for their families. Like we need to think about the, the inequality right. and, and how we're contributing to that inequality as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Any, one more? One more question? Yes. How do you know? <laughs> yes, oh yes, he's still there. <laughs> you recognize yes. the house. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was her first house, the one, is that the yeah. one where your dad was building? I, um, yeah, one of my father's biggest dreams for us was to be homeowners. You know, I mean, that the American dream, right? So I was 26 years old when I bought my first house in L.A. And it was um, one of those moments when I felt that, thanks to my father, who had always talked about all these dreams that he had for us, that was another dream that I checked off, you know, uh, when, I, when I bought my, my first house in L.A. So. Yeah, it's cool. You have people, you have to take a picture together for sure. Yeah. It it was a very very ugly house. <laughs> it was a fixer upper. It was an extreme <laughs> fixer upper with capital letters, and I she said, had a baby, right? "Yeah, and what?" But but what I said was, "This is the equivalent of a first draft," and every writer knows that the first draft is always shitty. Right. <laughs> so now I'm on my third house. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.